Amen. Thank you, praise team, for uh, leading us before the throne of God together. I, I love those two songs. Uh, everything in me wanted to come up here and grab the mandolin or guitar and join in next time. We have an awesome God. Amen. Amen. A couple highlights to uh, share with you. Uh, I, I don't see him. Uh, Pastor Doug was here first service. I didn't know if he'd be here in the second service or not. He was here first service, taught Sunday school. So uh, thank you for praying for him. It was good to have him back. Uh, I know he's walking around with a cane today, so it's, it's, it's healing. And uh, I know he said there's a little bit of soreness. Tomorrow he gets his stitches out, or removed, I guess, uh, tomorrow. Uh, so just continue to pray for him and Nancy and Allison as they walk through these days of recovery. also want to uh, highlight uh, John and Becky had a had their, uh, their boy uh, last night, well actually 3.30 this morning, uh, Reno Beckett, uh, that'd be John and Becky Costa, had a, a son Reno this morning, he was 9 pounds, 10 ounces, as a healthy baby boy, and he was 22 inches long, so uh, we can praise God for that, and uh, praise with the family. Um, also I wanted to highlight, we are having a Thanksgiving Eve service, I'm not sure if Harold uh, include that in the announcements, but you see it in the bulletin. Uh, there is a Thanksgiving Eve service this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And Pastor Doug and I would like to encourage you, if, if you are able, to uh, possibly bring out some dry goods to give to the food bank that we support. Uh, we really have uh, so much to be thankful for, and it's maybe a neat way to kind of share the many blessings God has given to us with uh, those in the community. So if you would feel led to, grab a few dry goods to, uh, to bring Wednesday night to donate to the food bank. Again, that is 7 p.m. tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, it is with great joy and rejoicing that we come before you. As Harold mentioned in his prayer, Lord, I thank you that we can come before your throne boldly through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we have so many blessings, so many things to be grateful for, so many things to be thankful for, and as we come into this season of, of thanksgiving, Lord, help us to count our blessings, to recognize that they are each, that each one of them is from your hand. Father, you are, you are such a wonderful God, the only true God, and you are good, and Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you, most importantly, for the greatest demonstration of your love through your Son, who willingly came to this earth and laid his life down on our behalf. He willingly went to the cross and took upon himself the full payment of our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship with you. I'm often reminded that it was that he was the righteous one who was willing to die a sinner's death so that we as sinners can live a righteous life. Father, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the many blessings that you give to us not only spiritually, but physically as well. And Father, I thank you that even as we sang, you are our lighthouse, that as we go through this world of darkness, Father, we don't live it on our own. You walk with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. You never let go. Father, thank you. Thank you that whether we are on the top of the mountain, rejoicing and joyful, or we are in the bottom of the valley going through difficult times, Lord, either way we can hold on to you. And, and cling to you and have direction, have hope, have purpose. So, Father, thank you again for your love. Thank you for uh, even the healing that you've provided our, our, our dear brother, Pastor Doug, and thank you for the quick recovery that he's been able to have. And 
Father, we just pray that you continue to be with him and the family as they continue to walk through these upcoming moments yet of having stitches removed and uh, walking with a cane and eventually getting back to walking without a cane. And Father, we just pray that you would bless them greatly. Father, we thank you for uh, John and Becky for giving new life through Reno and uh, for the baby boy. Lord, we just thank, praise you for him. As scripture tells us, all children are a gift. And uh, Father, I know that they are rejoicing in what you have provided. And Father, we just pray for continued health for mom and, and son and that you would give all the whole family rest and, and the strength they need to go through the, the upcoming days. Father, I pray now that as we open your word that you would speak to us, that as Jesus so often said, that you would help us to have ears to hear and help us to have a willingness to be obedient to whatever your spirit would maybe convict us of or challenge us in or encourage us with. Father, help us to be sensitive to your leading. And I do pray that you would keep my words from error and that each one of us, including myself, would hear from you this morning, hear from your word, because it's all about you. So help us to honor you by being diligent in our walk with you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I think I just got a little bit louder there, brother. Sorry. Uh, We're going to be picking it up in the next verse. Uh, Last week we looked at chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. If you were not able to be with us last week, I encourage you to go on our website. You can listen to all of the the messages from not just last Sunday, but the last, uh, I believe, last few months. Uh, So if you'd like to get caught up on anything or you just have free time and you want to hear Pastor Doug or myself speak, there you go. You can go on the website and hear that. But uh, last week we looked at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2 where Paul gives this, this kind of paradox phrase where he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling while God works in you. And it is both and. We kind of boiled it down. And if you kind of put it in a nutshell, it's like this. Our growth, the growth of a believer, requires the believer's diligent effort. And growth does not happen without that. Growth is a constant pursuit of holiness, a constant pursuit of obedience, a constant pursuit of active trust in Christ. And growth does not happen without us as believers pursuing growth. But at the same time, growth also does not happen without God working in us. It is the enabling of the Holy Spirit within our lives that enables us to grow, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So growth doesn't happen without either. It's it's both. Our pursuit, our diligent effort, and also the Holy Spirit working within us. And we talked about how working out your salvation is kind of this general exhortation, this general admonition. It includes a lot of things. It includes working at, making a break from sin, saying no to sin, considering ourselves dead to sin, like Paul writes in Romans 6. It includes working on our attitude, that our attitude would be that of gentleness, that of uh, mercy, that of kindness, that of patience, that of self-control. It means also taking advantage of the tools that God has given to us to grow, such as being in the Word of God daily. David says to meditate on his Word day and night. It includes being a man or woman of prayer. It includes worshiping. It includes serving and giving. And so work out your salvation is this very general, generalized teaching. But he says to work it out with fear and trembling. And we highlighted that that does not mean just being scared before God. Fear and trembling is an Old Testament phrase which carries the idea that you and I have have an audience of one. We do not pursue growth 
to please other people. We pursue growth to honor the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is our audience of one. And fear and trembling includes coming before God humbly, and it includes having a desire to do it correctly because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because of his justice. And so it's this reverence that as we work out our salvation, it's not about being able to pat ourselves on the back saying, great job, Isaac, you, you read scripture the last 10 days in a row, or you, you prayed for 10 minutes for the last five days. It's, it has nothing to do with that. It's this desire to honor Christ first and foremost. And so Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 14 is where we're going to pick it up today. Paul gets a little more specific. And, and to be honest, I, I was very, I guess, intrigued this week by what Paul says next. Because Paul could say anything at this point. He could say, cling to the word of God. He could say, walk faithfully. He could say, be holy as God is holy. I mean, it, it could have been anything here. But look what he writes, verse 14. Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He says, do all things. He's referring to as you work out your salvation, whatever it might be, do all things without grumbling or complaining would be another word you might have in your translation, or disputing or arguing. So do all things without complaining or disputing. The word complaining in the Greek is just a lovely word to try and say early on a Sunday morning. It is gagusmas. That's what complaining is. That's the Greek word. You learned it today. Take it home. Use it if you can. I don't know. But uh, don't complain. And complaining is this. It involves quiet verbal expressions of discontent or displeasure accompanied by feelings of annoyance or anger. You all know what I'm talking about when you say complaining. You've either heard someone complain or you've complained, right? Paul says do all things without complaining. So what do people grumble about? What do they complain about? Well, everything. We complain about people. We complain about maybe our spouse, our wife, our husband, our children, our parents, our employers, our employees, our teachers, our neighbors, and on and on. We complain about circumstances. It might include our health, our job, or the lack of a job, our house, our car, our clothes, our neighbors. It could be anything. Children complain about doing homework or chores. Moms complain about having to pick up after everyone in the house. Dads come home and complain about their jobs or their boss. And it just goes on and on and on. As I was thinking about this past week, complaining seems to be the American way of life, doesn't it? Almost every conversation we enter into, there's a complaint about government, there's a complaint about the economy, the taxes we pay, and even the weather, as if we could change it. Unfortunately, among believers, there's complaints about maybe the congregation is too big, too small, too warm, too cold, too friendly, the sermon was too long, too pointed, too dry, too boring. I mean, we, complaints, complaints. Complaining isn't just an American pastime, it's a human race issue. Because our sin nature tends to be more negative than positive. Anytime we come across a situation that we believe has made our life or the life of another person we care about difficult, we are tempted to grumble. And here's the truth, my friends. We don't need to be happy with our circumstances, but we also it doesn't give us a reason to complain about them. Turn with me to James. The book of James. James highlights this reality for the believer. James chapter 1, 
verse 2 through 4. James writes this, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, when you encounter trials, not if you encounter trials, when you encounter trials, look at it as an opportunity for growth. If you and I are able by faith to continue to rejoice even in the midst of difficult trials, we will stay away from having a spirit of discontent which leads to grumbling and complaining. And Paul says it also leads to disputing or arguing. Here's what a dispute is. A deliberating questioning about what is true. A doubting and arguing. Complaints oftentimes lead to arguments. We argue when our complaining spills into our conversation. We often seek misery, seek fellowship in our misery. (laughs) In our misery, we seek to manipulate others to comply with our complaints. Arguing often stirs up doubts and suspicions. Proverbs, Solomon writes this, he says, Mockers stir up a city, but the wise men turn away anger. We get upset, and it affects our emotions, and then we look for some intellectual reason to justify our issue. Max Lucado writes this in his book, Just Like Jesus. He gives this illustration. He, he, he says there was a man who came home one day, and immediately his wife started complaining, which led to an intense argument. So the man arrived home at 6.30 that evening and literally spent the next hour trying to make things right. Nothing was working. So finally he said, sweetheart, let's pretend I just got home and let's start over. She silently nods her head and agreement so he walks out of the door closes the door reopens the door comes back in and she says it's 7 30 and you're just now getting home (laughs) complaining it's hard to please some people but the reason why grumbling is such a serious sin is because in its very essence we are upset with god and choosing not to trust him complaining at its very basic point is a sin of pride. It's saying, I know what's best for me, God, and I don't like what you've allotted to me. At its root, it's a failure to trust God. And as 1 John 5 says, if we do not believe God, we have made him out to be a liar. Look again at verse 15. Paul writes that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. I want you to catch three statements in verse 15. Because I believe as Paul's writing this, he has in mind the nation of Israel. Okay, so he says, look, if you want to prove yourself, if, if you do all these things, you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God. Hang on to that phrase, children of God. And then he says, you'll be in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. As your light shines among men. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Please. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is at the end of his life. He has commissioned Joshua to lead the people of Israel. He is ready to hang up his hat. In chapter 32, verse 5, he writes these words, a part of his final song to the people, right before he takes his last breath. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, Moses writes, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. See, Paul says, look, if, if you do all things without complaining and grumbling, you will prove yourselves to be children of God. The nation of Israel was to be the ch- children of God. And yet Moses is saying they, they failed because they've acted corruptly. They've walked wickedly. They've ignored the Lord. They've turned away from the Lord. They have proved themselves to not be true children of the Father. And they are a crooked and perverse generation. Paul says you should, you should be children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation so that your light may shine. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah writes how the nation of Israel was to be a light in the world to the other nations. If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, he says the nation of Israel is to be a blessing to all the other nations. They were to be holy, set apart, different, distinct That's why God gave them 613 commandments under Moses, not to be a burden upon them, but so that they would know who their God was and what it looked like to be holy from the other nations. None of the other nations knew what their gods wanted from them. And so they would sacrifice people, they would sacrifice animals, they had no idea what to do to please all these gods that they had. But the nation of Israel knew what God expected of them. They knew the one true God. And yet they failed proved to be children of God because they acted corruptly and they walked away from God. In fact, if you jump back just to chapter 31, verse 29, this is what Moses says, For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Paul's saying, look, don't follow their example. Prove yourselves to be children of God by working out your salvation with fear and trembling while not complaining. Do all things without complaining. Let me take you on a journey this morning through Scripture. Would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 14? Exodus chapter 14. We're going to look a little bit here at the nation of Israel. Complaining goes all the way back to the very first human, by the way. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam sinned, his very first complaint is, God, it is this woman you gave me. And then, of course, she says, well, it was the serpent. Chapter 4, his son Cain, after killing his brother Abel, complains about how severe that, that he complains that the punishment that God has given him is too severe. Do, you, do, do we really get to complain after you kill someone? And yet Cain is complaining about his punishment. And Moses, uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 5 complains that God is moving too slowly, that he should be pulling the Israelite nation out of Egypt much faster. And then in Exodus chapter 14, we see the nation of Israel carry this, carry this forward. Verse 11 says, And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They wanted to go back and die in Egypt, because Egypt was a wonderful place to live, wasn't it? Do you remember the beginning of Exodus? They were forced into slavery. Their work was increased, and it was was made uh, harder, because they weren't allowed to have certain ingredients to make the bricks. Their infant boys were slaughtered. That's why Moses is put into a basket and then rescued by 
the daughter of Pharaoh. And yet they say, let's go back there. Why did you bring us out here to the wilderness to die? They had seen, this is right after they had seen the hand of God move through ten powerful plagues. After they had seen the angel of death march through Egypt and kill the firstborn, except theirs because they had taken the lamb, or the blood of the lamb and put it upon their doorframe of their house. They had seen some miraculous things, and yet here they are complaining, let's go back to Egypt. And God provides And we'll see that God is a very gracious God because he continues to provide. He provides. They're standing at the Red Sea. He splits the Red Sea. They march through. The Egyptians come right behind them. The sea collapses on them. And and all the Egyptians that that were following them are wiped out. The Israelites sing a song in chapter 15. And then they go right back to grumbling in chapter 16. Verse 1, it says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is a very shallow group of people. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled. See, this is complaining, going to arguing. They quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Catch this next phrase. Why do you test the Lord? Moses understood that their complaining wasn't against him. It was ultimately against the hand of God, against the provision of God. Verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Turn with me, please, to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, this is right after the 12 spies have walked into the land. Caleb and Joshua and the 10 other spies, they have returned. And they're standing before the people. And in verse 30, Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. If you want to do a character study... Caleb and Joshua are amazing men of faith and courage and would be an awesome study for you to walk through. Caleb says, let's go. God has provided. We can overcome it. Verse 31, But the men who had gone with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. These ten faithless, afraid men say, This is impossible. 
and they give a bad report out. Chapter 14, verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. At this point, they're saying, hey, the wilderness doesn't look so bad to die in anymore. I mean, for a long time, they're like, we don't want to die here. We want to die in Egypt. But now that we might be called to move forward in faith and go to the, to the promised land, the wilderness doesn't look so bad anymore. We can die there, or we could go back to Egypt, Moses. We'll, we'll die in either place. But we don't want to follow God. We don't want to step out in faith. And so they say, let's appoint a new leader. Verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. This is referring to they were ready to stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb because they were not following them into the land. Let's stone them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. Please jump to verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Verse 34. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall, hear, you shall bear excuse me, your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord." Complaining and grumbling is an ugly sin. Asaph writes this in Psalm 78. He says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 106 says, They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. I could go on and on. Numbers chapter 16, Korah starts a rebellion against Moses, and they complain again. In the book of Joshua, the people complain, complain, complain. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this will be familiar to you, I'm sure, because Pastor Doug has highlighted it several times this past year. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes about the Israelite nation. We'll pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 10. Paul 
Paul writes in verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? The question is, who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to complain about the situations that God has allowed to come into our lives? James writes this, he says, Do not complain, brothers, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Peter jumps on this as well. He says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Rather, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the grace of God. And if that doesn't all drive it home, please turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. As I read this this past week and prepared this message, I really questioned whether I should even stand in front of you today. Because my life, even though I don't think I complain much, typically, as I was reading this, I complain more than I should. I was convicted, especially by this verse here, Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah Writes, and I'd like to look at verse 37, 38, and 39, if you would. Chapter 3, verse 37, he says, Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Verse 39, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? When I think, maybe when you think about the sins that are in our lives, the sins that we so often struggle with, maybe it's pride, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, who are we to offer complaint? The question is, what do we deserve? And the answer is, we deserve an eternity separated from God in a real place called hell. And yet God has been gracious, God has been merciful, He has sent His Son so we could be forgiven. And when we, by grace through faith, place our trust in Him, we are given more than we deserve. And Jeremiah says, who are we, in view of our sins, to offer complaints? Who are we to offer complaints? Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2, don't do that. <laughs> don't follow the example of the Israelites. Don't live as they have lived. Do all things. As you work out your salvation, do all things without grumbling or complaining and disputing so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. You remember what Paul was driving at here in Philippians? He's driving at unity in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When we complain, we are causing division. 
When we are complaining, our complaining leads to arguing where we begin to get people to come alongside of us to agree with our complaints or our view of something, which eventually leads to dissension and leads to rebellion and leads to division. And Paul is saying, don't allow that in the church. Because as the church, we should be united. We should have our eyes set upon Jesus Christ. And we should do all things without complaining as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all for his honor and his glory. Jesus will, the Lord will, lead us through times of trial, times of testing. Jesus even says, you will be persecuted because they've persecuted me. So it's inevitable that you and I will face hard times in our lives. But God does not allow us to go through those so we can complain. God allows us to go through those so we can learn to pray so we can learn to trust, so we can learn to be grateful and thankful and to cling to the Word of God and cling to our Savior. Paul understood this. In chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Do you remember where he is at? He's in prison. Verse 14 And the most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Sometimes God allows us to stand in some difficult situations so that others can see what it looks like to cling to God. Verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, and that's where we like to end this. We can have salvation and then we can pursue life and freedom. But he says this, but also to suffer for his sake. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that being in the center of God's will does not always guarantee safety. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace. The disciples were nailed to the cross or died or thrown in prison. And Jesus went to the cross for you and I. And yet they were in the center of the will of God. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 11 of Philippians, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You and I do not go through this life on our own. As I said last week, God walks with us. And that should give you all the confidence and the hope that you need. And as we go through life and difficult times, we are to be content. We are to do all things without grumbling and complaining because grumbling and complaining denies God's sovereignty, disrupts unity, and discredits our testimony. So how can we learn? Let's wrap it up here. How can we learn to develop a non-complaining, positive attitude that will please the Lord? Well, Romans 12, 2 says we should have our minds renewed. And we get uh, our minds are renewed by the Word of God. We should confess our critical spirit and commit ourselves to obedience. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He is just and faithful to cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. And we should find some accountability partners, shouldn't we? Some men and women who will come alongside of us and say, Don't complain. <laughs> stand firm. Stand strong. Cling to the Word of God. We need accountability. We need men and women who will come alongside of us and pray for us. And the Spirit, as I've said before, will empower us to depend upon Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
you have given us maybe a tall challenge this morning. I know in my own life, as I think about situations I have gone through and I face, it is much easier to complain than to trust. But Father, as we look at Paul's words here this morning, help us to do all things without complaining and grumbling, without disputing. Father, that we would in all things seek unity and seek peace and stand firm in the Word of God, that we would be like Caleb and Joshua, courageous men who are willing to stand upon Your Word and who are willing to step out in faith. Father, I thank You for the examples that have been written for us in Scripture. Help us to not imitate the Israelite nation in their complaining and their grumbling and their lack of trust. Father, help us to be more like Paul, where we say, I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances might be. So, Lord, help us. Strengthen us. May we honor you. May we be lights shining in this dark world for your glory and your honor. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.